to be learned and one that we must never forget if we wish to maintain paid-up insurance policies against our drinking. You recall the story about Bill having uh, been, uh, having had some spiritual experience, having been uh, sold on the idea of attempting to be helpful to others. You undoubtedly recall the fact that he had been working quite hard at it for around five months or so, almost incessantly, and still had not created, if you please, a single convert. Not one. As we express it, no one had jailed. But he had worked tirelessly uh, with no thought of saving his own strength or time or anything. But uh, nothing seemed to register. When he came out to Akron on this business mission, which perhaps for the good of all of us turned out to be quite a flop, although he had the thing licked but didn't know it. He was tempted to drink, and he was pacing up and down the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel, wondering whether he better buy those two fifths of gin uh, and be a king for a night, as he expresses it, or not. And his teachings led him to believe that he possibly might avoid getting into difficulties if he found some alcoholic on whom to work. Spying the name of our good friend, Reverend Walters, on the <coughs> bulletin board in the lobby of the Mayflower, he called up the good doctor and uh, asked him the names of some of the group of people with whom he had been affiliated and through, his, through whose instrumentality he had acquired uh, sobriety. The good doctor said he wasn't one, but he knew of quite a number, and he gave him quite a little list, I guess about nine or ten of them. So Bill starts to call them up. Without very much success, they were, had either just left town or they were just leaving town or they were having a party or they had a sore toe or something. Anyway, they came down to the end or at least very nearly the end and his eye lights on the name Mrs. and happened to get our good friend Henrietta. But he called up a good Henry and told her what he wanted, and she said, come right out and have lunch with him. So out he went, and went into his story in considerable detail, and she said, I have just the man for you. So she rushes to the phone and calls up Anne, and tells her that she has just the power to be helpful to Bob. We should come over. And he said, well, I guess we'd better not go over today. But Henry is very persistent, very determined individual. 
said, oh, yes, come on over. I know it'll be helpful, Bob. Well, Henry didn't think it was quite wise for us to come over there. And finally, Henry bore in to such an extent that she had to tell her that I was very much in the sack. And uh, has, in fact, it passed all capabilities for listening to any conversation. And it would just possibly have to be postponed. So she stopped in the next day, having invited being Sunday and Mother's Day. And we said that uh, our aunt said we would be over. Well, I don't ever remember feeling much worse. But being very fond of Henry and having said we'd go over, we started over and I extracted the solemn promise man on the way over that 15 minutes of this stuff was tough. That I didn't want to talk to this mug or anybody else and we'd really make it snappy. Now these are actual facts. Uh, we got there at 5 o'clock and it was 11.15 when we left. Now, you know... Uh, or possibly your memories are good enough to carry you back to certain times when you haven't felt too good and you can easily visualize the fact that you wouldn't have listened to anybody unless that individual had really had something to tell you. And that's the way I felt about Bill. And I recognized the fact that he did have something and so I listened those um, many hours. And uh, I stopped drinking immediately. But very shortly after that, there was a medical meeting in uh, Atlantic City. And I uh, developed a terrific thirst for knowledge. I had to have knowledge. So we would go to, I would go to Atlantic City and absorb lots of knowledge. I usually mention the fact that I incidentally had acquired a thirst for scotch, but I didn't mention that. But anyway, I went to Atlantic City and really hung one on. And uh, when I was, came to, I was in the home of a friend of ours in Cauga Falls, one of our suburbs. And Bill came over and got me and uh, got me home. Uh, gave me a hooker or two of scotch that night and a bottle of beer the next morning. And uh, that was on the 10th of June of 35, and I have had no alcohol in any form that I know of since. Now, the, the uh, interesting part of all this, and not all these sordid details, but the uh, uh, condition that we two fellows were in, we had both been associated with the same uh, bunch of uh, people. He in New York and I in Akron. I had been associated with them, in fact, for two years and a half. He for five months. He had acquired this idea of service uh, and that I had not. But I had uh, done an immense amount of reading, which they recommended. I had refreshed my memory on the good book, and I'd had an excellent training in that as a youngster. 
They told me that I should go to their meetings regularly, and I did every week. They said I should uh, affiliate myself with some church, and we did that. And they also said that I should cultivate the habit of prayer. And I did that, at least to quite a considerable extent for me. Uh, but I got tight every night. And I mean that, so it's total once in a while, it was practically every night. Uh, and I couldn't understand what was wrong. I had done all these things that these good people told me to do. Every one of them. And I thought very faithfully and sincerely, but I still continued to overindulge. But the one thing that they hadn't told me was the one thing that Bill had. The uh, instruction to attempt to be helpful to somebody else. So we immediately started to look around for prospects, and it wasn't long before one appeared in the form of a man whom you all know, at least a great many of you know, a good friend of Akron. Now, I knew that this uh, Bill was a uh, Sunday school superintendent. And I also thought that he probably forgot more about the good book every night than I ever knew. And he, uh, who was I to be trying to tell him about it? And it uh, made me feel somewhat uh, hypocritical. It is quite a job for me to talk to him uh, on that sort of subject. But anyway, we both did, and I'm very glad to say the conversation fell on fertile ground. Then in October, we had three dumped in our laps uh, almost simultaneously. But the point I wanted to bring out was the fact that uh, that in my mind, the spirit of service is of prime importance, although it has to be backed up with some uh, knowledge of uh, the subject. I know I used to go to the hospital, and I'd stand there and, and talk. I've talked many a time to a chap in a bed for five or six hours. I don't know how he ever stood me for five or six hours, but he did. Probably we'd hidden his clothes or something. But anyway, uh, the, it came to my mind that uh, I probably didn't know too much about what I was talking. Therefore, we being stewards of what we have, and that includes our time, I was not giving a good account of my stewardship of time. If it took me six hours to say something to this man that I could have said in an hour, we'll say, if I'd known what I was talking about, I certainly was not a very efficient individual. And incidentally, I'm somewhat allergic to work anyway. So, uh... I felt that I should 
continue to increase my familiarity not only with the good book, but uh, read a good deal of good standard literature and possibly something of uh, scientific interest along with it. So I did tolerate this habit of reading, and I think I've I think I'm not exaggerating when I say that I have probably averaged to read an hour a day for the last 15 years. Now, I don't say that to try to sell you on the idea that you've got to cultivate that habit of reading an hour a day, because there are plenty of people in fine AAs that don't read very much. You see, back in those days, we were groping in the dark entirely. We did not uh, know much about it. We knew practically nothing of alcoholism. I, a physician, knew nothing about it to speak of. Oh, I'd read about it, but there wasn't anything worth reading in any of the textbooks. And uh, usually the information about it consisted on... Uh, some queer treatment for DTs. If you'd gone that far, and if you hadn't, why, you prescribed a few bromides and uh, gave the fellow a good lecture. None of which, of course, uh, amounted very much. And in early uh, AA days, we became quite convinced that uh, the spiritual program was fine, but it... Uh, we could help the Lord out a little with some supplementary diet. So, uh, in the early days, Bill, having a lot of stomach trouble, had stumbled across the fact that uh, he got along much better on sauerkraut and cold tomatoes. And so we thought that in as much as Bill had to have that experience, that would probably everyone else would share the same. But, of course, we discovered later that the uh, most any dietary restriction had very little to do with the acquisition and maintenance of permanent variety. We, uh, in our own stories in the mountain thing speak of, when I, we started in on film, we had no 12 steps, we had no traditions, we had uh, nothing of that kind. But we were convinced that the answer to our problem was in the good book. And it uh, became somewhat evident, we thought, to some of us older ones, that it was contained, the part that we found absolutely essential, to a rather limited section of the good book. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount, 13th chapter of Corinthians and the book of James. I think we got those ideas pretty firmly implanted in our minds very early. And we had in those days, our membership got to five and seven and ten and still small. Why, we used to have daily meetings in somebody's house. Um... It was probably providentially arranged that uh, this, all this happened at a time when everybody was broke, and awfully broke, too. It was probably much easier for us to be successful when broke than it would have been to have been successful if we'd had uh, a good checking account apiece. 
but I know that we were, we were, every one of us, just so painfully broken. Well, it wasn't a pleasant thought. But nothing could be done about it, and everybody else was broke too, and so we didn't take it too much at heart. But I do think that that was providentially arranged. But anyway, we kept on having these meetings and having these discussions and attending the meetings of the, these good people with whom we had been associated and did continue to have them with them until, in Akron I'm talking about, of course, until about 40, or maybe early in 41. Might have been January 41. I don't recall the exact date. When we outgrew the residence of this good friend who had allowed us to bang up the plaster and the uh, door jams, uh, counting chairs up and down stairs, he had a very beautiful home. Uh, we had outgrown that, and so we stepped out and, uh, in a short time, acquired the rental of the auditorium in the King's School, and we have, we, I mean, I'm talking about, uh, group that I attend personally has been there ever since. We attempt to have a good meeting and I think we're usually successful. But it wasn't until the 39 that the uh, teachings and efforts and studies that uh, had been going on were crystallized in the form of the 12 steps. I didn't write the 12 steps. They had nothing to do with the writing of them. I think probably I had something to do with, with uh, them indirectly because after this June 10th episode, Bill came to live at our house and stayed for about, about three months. And there was hardly a night in that three months that we didn't sit up till two or three o'clock discussing these things. And it'd be hard for me to conceive that something wasn't said that during those nightly discussions around our kitchen table that influenced the actual writing of the 12 steps. So much more handy to have in that form, of course. We had the ideas uh, pretty much basically, but not in uh, turf and uh, tangible form. We got them, as I said, as a result of our study and effort out of the good book. We must have had them because uh, we have learned from experience that they are very important in maintaining sobriety, and we were maintaining sobriety, therefore we had them, but not in exactly the written form. Uh, you know them now. But that was the way that things started off in Akron. And uh, as we grew, of course, uh, we began to get offshoots. First one was in Cleveland. And I don't remember the next one, but uh, anyway, they were started in Akron not too long after that. And... Uh, have been continuing ever since. It is a great source of satisfaction to me to feel that I may have played some part in kicking in my two bits worth toward getting this thing started. 
I like to think that I have done that. Maybe I'm taking too much for granted. I don't know. But I, I feel that I was simply used as God's agent. I feel that I'm no different from any of you fellas or girls, except that I was a little more fortunate that I got this message 13 and a half years ago, and some of you had to wait till a little later. In fact, I got a little peeved that uh, I have my father because he was a little slow on the trigger because I thought I would have been ready to receive it quite a while before he got around to present it. And uh, that used to irritate me no end, but uh, after all, maybe he knows better than I. But I felt sure that I would have been glad to have anything presented that would have been workable and produce the sobriety which I thought at least that I wanted so badly. I used to even doubt that at times. I, I would go to my good friend Henry and say, Henry, uh, do you think that I want to stop drinking with it? Henry, being very charitable, soul said, Yes, Bob, I'm sure you want to stop. And uh, I would say, well, I can't conceive of any living human who want, really wanted to do something as badly as I think I want to do it, who could be so total a failure. That any, I think I'm just one of, uh, one of these want-to-want-to guys. He said, no, Mom, I think you want to. We just haven't found uh, just the way to work it yet. But anyway, that was the way I felt about it. And the fact that my sobriety has been maintained continuously for 13 and a half years doesn't uh, allow me to think that I'm necessarily any farther away from my next drink than any of you people here. I'm still very human, and I still think that a double of scotch would taste awful good. And if it didn't produce disastrous results, I might do it. I don't know. I really love scotch. But I have no reason to think that the, it would taste any differently. I have no legitimate reason to believe that the results would be any different. They were always the same. They were always the same in that I always wound up back at the dear old eight ball somewhere. And I have no precedent or anything to make it feel legitimate for me to believe that the results today would be any different than they were 14 and 20 and 25 and 30 years ago when I did the same thing. I just don't want to pay that bill, because that's a big bill. It always was, and I think it would be even larger today, because of what has gone on in the last 15 years, and naturally being a bit out of practice. I don't believe I'd really last very long, and I'm having an awful nice time. And I just don't want to bump myself off, even by the uh, 
of the pleasures of the alcohol room. Now, I'm not going to do it. And I'm never going to do it. As long as I do the things that I'm supposed to do. And I know what those things are. So if I should ever get tired, I certainly never would have anyone to blame for it. It would be done, perhaps not with malice or that, but it certainly would be done with, as a result at least, of extreme carelessness and indifference. I said I was quite human. And I get to thinking every once in a while, well, here's this Smith guy, he's a fairly smart individual. He's got this look at situation right for the tail, proved it, demonstrated it, hasn't had a drink for 13 years. Probably could knock off a couple and no one would be the wiser. No, I'm trying, I'm not trying to be funny at all because those thoughts actually enter my mind. And I know just a minute they do exactly what has happened. You see there, American, we have the extreme good fortune, as a great many of you people know, of having a very nice hospital set up at St. Thomas Hospital. With a ward that theoretically accommodates seven, but consistently Baker sees that it's stretched a little bit, and we usually, she usually has about two or three more packed around somewhere. And I almost invariably, I find that I haven't been paying quite so much attention to the boys in the ward as I should. Just as sure as that idea that I could probably, probably polish off a couple enters my mind, I think, uh-uh, about the boys in the ward. You've been giving them the semi-brush off here for a few days. You better get back on the job, big boy, before you get into trouble. And I got her right back and uh, uh, am much more attentive than I had been in the days preceding the time that I got this funny idea. But I get it, and I get it every once in a while, and I'll probably continue to get it as long or whenever I get careless about that one thing. You know, back in uh, those early days about which I spoke, before we had the 12 steps, we did have some other things besides the actual uh, biblical uh, verses. That was. I was getting to thinking more of Smith than I was of Ward, otherwise I wouldn't have neglected him. And I wasn't being especially loving. When these fellows had come there, indicating their desire for help, and I was just a little too busy to give them any, or at least very much, of my time. So I would be bothered with the bird. Ten cents to get rid of him, well, that's easy. You could even stand two bits. But not because you love the father, just to be relieved of uh, the nuisance of his uh, hanging on your coat sleeve or what have you. No unselfishness, no uh, love indicated in the transaction at all. But I think that the thing that really counts is really giving a service of yourself, and that almost in... Invariably, 
not always, but almost invariably uh, requires some effort and some time of your own. It isn't a matter of putting a little quiet money in the dish. That helps, and possibly that's indicated too. But that isn't giving much. That is for the average individual in days like this when most people get along at least fairly well. That type of giving I don't believe would ever keep anyone sober or anyone inert. But giving of his own effort and strength and time is quite a different matter. And I think that's what is meant by, and what was meant by what Bill learned in New York that I didn't get in Akron. A matter of those four absolutes we call them, the only yardsticks we had in the early days, I think they still hold good. And I still think that they can be extremely helpful. I have found at times that questions arise and uh, I want to do the right thing, but the answers are not obvious. Uh, you don't know what the right thing is. But almost always, if you check it into it carefully, by the yardsticks of absolute honesty, purity, and selflessness, and love, and whatever your decision is, checked up pretty well with those four, your answer can't be very far out of the way. If, however, you do that, as I have done at times, and still am not too satisfied with the answer, I usually consult some friend whose judgment, perhaps, I think in this particular case would be very much better than mine. But usually you can do it yourself without bothering your friends about your own personal decisions uh, in overcoming the first step. Can't quite get honest enough to admit that uh, John Garlicon really uh, has bested us. A matter of absolute purity uh, is somewhat like it. It's purity of ideas and purity of motives and what have you. Non-selfishness includes those things that I've just been talking about. Not the dime or the two bits to the bump, but actually giving of yourself. And as you well know, the absolute love is probably a big word incorporating all three with a little bit more along with it. I think that that is a very difficult thing to have absolute love. I, I don't think any of us will ever get it. But that doesn't mean that we can't try to get it. It was extremely difficult for me, and I feel that I never have been very successful at it. It's very difficult for me to love my fellow man. I didn't dislike him, but I didn't love him. Uh, unless there was some special reason he was just, uh, uh, I was just indifferent toward him. I wouldn't do him any harm. I, I would be willing to give him a little lift if uh, it didn't require too much effort. I never would injure him at all. But to love him, I just couldn't do it for a long time. And I think that I overcame it 
to some extent when I was forced to do it. Because I was either going to love this bird or not to attempt to be helpful to him, or I would probably get drunk You could say, well, uh, Lordy, you were just, uh, that's just a manifestation of selfishness. Which is quite correct. I was selfish to the extent of not wanting Smith hurt. So to keep from getting Smith hurt, I, I would attempt to go through the motions of being helpful to this other fellow. You can debate it uh, any way you want to, but uh, the fact still remains. For the average individual, absolute love is a thing that he will never acquire. I suspect there are a few people who do. I think maybe I know some that come pretty close to it. But I think I could count them on the fingers of one hand. I don't say that uh, in a disparaging manner, because I have some wonderful friends. I'm talking about it in its uh, final aspect, and uh, particularly as it uh, applies to AAs. I don't think we do anything well uh, very much in this world unless we practice it. And I don't believe we do AA work too well unless we practice it. These fellows that win break world's records in athletic events, or people who, who uh, win the titles in the boxing arena, are people who practice it. They've been practicing it for years. Even though they may uh, necessarily be endowed with a lot of physical ability and uh, uh, skill, they still have to practice and we have to practice to do a good job in AA. And there are a number of things that we should practice. We should practice, as I say, acquiring the spirit of service. We should attempt to acquire some faith, which isn't always easily done, especially for the person who's always been very materialistically minded. And those are the standards of society today beyond all doubt and fair adventure. You have a million bucks and your neighbor has 900 grand, you're a much better man than your neighbor to the extent of $100,000. And uh, so forth and so on at Mafia. But... Uh, I think that... It can be acquired. It can be acquired slowly. I don't believe, I think that is something that has to be cultivated also. That was not easy for me. I just assume it's difficult for others. Another thing that was difficult for me, and I probably don't do too well yet, and that is a matter of tolerance. We're all uh, in time to have closed minds. They're pretty tightly closed. And that's one reason that some people find uh, our spiritual teachings difficult. They, they, they don't want to find out too much about it for various personal reasons. Uh, one reason is the fear of being considered effeminate, just for illustration. 
But anyway, the matter of towels uh, toward the other individual's ideas, uh, it's quite important that we do acquire it. I think I've acquired it. I have much more of it than I did have, although not enough to hurt me any yet. Somebody crossed me. Why, I would have to make at least a rather caustic remark about it, which I've done many times, much to my regret. And later on, I find that the man knew much more about it than I, and I'd been infinitely better off if I'd just kept my big mouth shut. Another thing with which uh, most of us are not overly blessed, and that is the feeling of humility. I don't mean the humility in the sense of Dickens, you are a heap at all. I don't mean the doormat variety. I don't think we're necessarily called on to be shoved around and stepped on by anyone, and we have a right to stand up for our rights. I'm talking about the, the attitude of each and every one of us toward our Heavenly Father. Christ said of myself, I am nothing. My strength cometh from my Father in heaven. And if he had to say that, how about you and me? But did you say it? Did I say it? No. That's exactly what we didn't say. We were inclined to say, well, look us over, boys. Pretty good, huh? That type of attitude. But there's no humility. No uh, uh, sense of having received anything through the grace of our Heavenly Father. So if I accomplish something, either in uh, AA activity, or uh, socially, or in my profession, I don't believe I have any right to get cocky about it. It's only through God's grace that I did it. I can feel very thankful that I was privileged to do it to have uh, the recognition which uh, I may have received for some activity. But basically, it was only through his kindness. And uh, it is my strength does come from him, and these things come as a result of his kindness, who am I to get cocky about it? I should have a very, very humble attitude toward the source of my strength. And I should also never cease to be grateful for whatever feelings come my way, uh, uh, blessings come my way. And I have been blessed, and I've been blessed in very large measure. You know, uh, it doesn't make much difference uh, whether a person is drinking or whether they're sober as far as their uh, ultimate aim is concerned. Whether they're drinking liquor or whether they're not, they're still after the same thing, and that's happiness and peace of mind. I hop about that a great deal because that's what we're all after, and we're all after all the time. We want those two things. We want happiness, and we want peace of mind. The trouble with us fellows was that we thought we could demand that the world give us happiness in just a particular way in which we wanted to get it, which happened to be by the alcohol route. And we weren't overly successful. But when we take time to find out 
and familiarize ourselves with and put into practice some of the spiritual laws which it is necessary to follow to acquire those things, then we find that we get them. And I think I've had them in a very large measure. Those two things, happiness and peace of mind. And I feel most extremely fortunate, and I feel very grateful and thankful that our Heavenly Father has seen fit that I enjoy them. So there, anybody can get them who uh, wishes to, but there do seem to be some rules of the game that we have to follow. But they're here and open and free to everyone who wishes to take advantage of them. And by taking advantage of them means their familiarization, their familiarization with them and putting them in practice and incorporating them in our own thinking and action and we're bound and determined to get certain results if we do. As I said, it is a very great source of pleasure and gratitude to me to feel that maybe I kicked in my two bits of club starting it. But as I said also, I feel that I was simply used as God's agent. The question might arise, well, we know what A's done in the last 15 years, but how about it from here on? Where do we go from here? Our membership, I think, is conservatively estimated at present around 70,000. But will it be in the increase from here on? Well, that'll depend on every member of AA. It is possible for us to do so or not, as we elect. If we fight shy of what the politicals call entangling alliances, if we avoid getting messed up with controversial issues such as religious and political issues, wet and dry problems and so forth, if there's no unity, through our central office, if we remember the simplicity of our program, if we continue to remember that our job is to get sober and to stay sober and to help our less fortunate brother in doing the same thing, I doubt very much if we shall have any trouble and we shall continue to grow and thrive and prosper. And I hope we all bear those little things in mind. Maybe there should be some additions to the list, but that roughly covers it uh, fairly well. And I hope none of us will ever forget what I just said about helping our less I'll spend my days, at least as many of them as I have, in caring for alcoholics. But God works in mysterious ways, and certainly his divine providence has directed all this. I feel he can use very weak instruments to carry out his 
designs. But uh, in our vantage point, as I know Colonel Towns would say, you see many wonderful results. Nothing short of miracles. We are not uh, <clears throat> given to a lot of imaginary things, but certainly God is extremely kind to the alcoholic. Because a contract in home heart, he'll never, never uh, refuse to help and give him the grace he needs. I feel that uh, it's a privilege to work in this field. I owe much to my community. I, when Bill called me about this, I certainly could hardly think of appearing on a program like this. And as I said, well, it's something like the AA third step. We turn our life and our will over to God on the direction of our superior. My superiors might have sent word at any time that I would take no more. It came nearly to, that, nearly to that point in a few cases. But thank God and the fervent prayers of, well, I suppose many of the sisters who were interested and our beloved Dr. Bob and Bill himself. Somehow we weathered it through. I'll just, uh, Bill asked me to say a few words about how we got started in Aspen. <clears throat> I hardly know myself. I was sent there in 1928, just as a, well, it might be, the doctor recommended occupational therapy, change of occupation for a while. I was in the field of music, and as you know, that's rather nerve-wracking. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, be good for me. So uh, I was sent uh, to St. Thomas, which was just opened in 1928, and it was there I met Dr. Bob. We had an open staff the first year because we didn't know the men, nor did they know us. Doctor operated at our hospital and the other hospitals. I didn't know they had a drinking problem, and in fact, I wouldn't have known it had he not told me so, because he didn't come to the hospital when he was drinking, evidently. Oh, I can recall uh, sometimes his voice was rather reverberating. I, <laughs> I could hear him when he came in the back door. He had a decided uh, English accent, I mean New England accent. But I, somehow I liked him because he was so straightforward. Those of us working on hospitals know that some doctors uh, make everything an emergency, a matter of life or death. Others will tell you the exact truth about the case. Say, well, my patient's going a few days, or if they can't, then you know that you take them for what they say. However, the doctor was so straightforward that I enjoyed working with him. And one day he told, he looked rather... Uh, down. We often had little chats, and uh, this uh, morning he came in and looked rather down. I said, Doctor, what's the trouble this morning? Well, then he told me. He said, well, sisters, he said, I might as well tell you that um, 
Uh, I came in contact with a New York broker, and uh, I've had a drinking problem for a long time. And somehow we got together, and we've all tried to work out something that will help these drunks, he said. Well, <clears throat> he said, we've uh, been trying it out. They tried a few rest homes, and uh, he had some in the other hospitals. And he said, Sister, would you consider taking one? Well, I hesitated because sometime before, oh, probably some months before, I took a man in who, oh, he looked, um, I didn't, I didn't know much about this drinking. I knew some could drink, <laughs> some could drink and have it, well, others couldn't. So uh, they called me to the emergency, and I went down and talked with him. Oh, he said, just like, just lie down a little while. He worked at the city garage and looked like a very respectable person. He said, I've been drinking a little too much, and I want to get straightened out, which I thought was a good thing. <laughs> well, the only bed that uh, we had at the time was a bed in a four-bedroom. Then we knew nothing about uh, special treatment, and... Uh, I signed into the man on service, on medical service, and registered him, put him to bed, and I said, you won't cause any trouble. Oh, no, he'd be an angel. <laughs> well, I forgot about him. When I came over early the next morning, the night supervisor, who was tall, sister, we always teased her about her big feet, well, she was standing at the door waiting for me. She said, the next time you take a DT in this place, please stay up all night and run around after him as we have. <laughs> mm. That wasn't the end of it either. I decided then that's, that's enough. I often felt sorry to see them turned away, but I was not the last word in the hospital. So when the doctor proposed my taking a real uh, because I saw the real <laughs> Well, you can imagine my misgivings. I said, oh, dear me. I, I told him about this experience, and I said, Doctor, uh, not only will I be put out, but I said, the patients and everything else. I said, I don't think they want alcoholics. So he said, Sister, this patient won't give you a bit of trouble because I will, I will medicate him, I'll assure you. <laughs> Well, I had much confidence in him because he never said anything that wasn't so. I'll always say that. Well, very carefully, I said, well, doctor, I shall take him then. And put him in a two-bedroom. I thought I was doing pretty well because we were so crowded in those days. And uh, beds were rather premium. So I took him to this two-bedroom. Doctor, pardon me, doctor went up and medicated him and everything. And I thought, well, I figured I wouldn't hear much till the next morning anyway if there was any trouble. So well, there was a word about it. Doctor then came to the admitting office. Thank you. He said, Sister, would you mind putting my patient in a private room? I thought I had done pretty good to put him in a two-bed. <laughs> he said, you know, 
They, uh, he said there'll be some men come to visit him, and they'd like to talk to him privately. Well, I uh, said, I'll do what I can, doctor. After he left, I went up and looked the situation over. And right across the hall, we had a flower room where we used to prepare the patient's flowers. And I thought, well, they can fix their flowers somewhere else for today, and I believe I could push the bed in there. <laughs> That's what we did. And his visitors came. We kept a close eye on them. <laughs> I did. <laughs> it was all you. And I thought, well, my, the respectable-looking men, they don't look as though they ever took a drink. <laughs> went along. I thought, now the next time, I won't have this trouble, I'll put him in a private room. So the next one that came along, I put in a private room. And, uh, he, uh, seen, I didn't know much about these alcoholics. I was not an expert, surely, the Lord picked out a, a weakling when he picked out me, I know. But, um, However, I took him down to the room, as I would any patient, and then was taking the chart to the desk to explain to the nurse a little about it. I couldn't tell her too much, but said Dr. Bob would, uh, would give her the orders. And wasn't he down after me? <laughs> well, he had his short tongue and everything else. And I nearly... I nearly went through the floor because the nurses all looked and everyone, and I said, you go right back to your room, we'll be right down. So the nurse came down with me, and here he was under the bed. <laughs> well, I thought this will never work. I don't believe this will go at all. I'd better put two together the next time. I didn't want to give up at once. I don't know just exactly what I did, whether I... Uh, had someone stay with him or what I did. But I know after that, I put, them, uh, put two together and then finally took a four-bedroom. That seemed to go pretty good. One would help the other. Usually, one or two would be in a few days before they'd be coming out of it pretty well. And um, so then we took another two-bed across the hall. Well, it was hard to say no when they really wanted to do something about it. And but that time, the men were coming in quite often. So much so that some of the sisters said, Who are these fine-looking men that come in so often and seem so interested in the patients? And uh, I didn't say much at first, but I later I said, Well, that is AA. I said, What is AA? Would you like to know something about it? Well, yes. Well, I'll bring some literature in. <laughs> I gradually got them. But, of course, before that, a committee from Alcoholics Anonymous talked with Sister Superior. She was one who had a lot of experience in the old days of charity and all. And uh, she knew what we were doing. And she said uh, to these men, she said, Well, uh, strange, she said, when we had them at charity, they'd be running around the halls and doing a lot of trouble. But since Dr. Bob is treating them, we don't know that they're in the house. So she said, there's no problem. As far as I can see, just go right along. 
Well, that was wonderful. But that wasn't all. Of course, then later patients uh, complained because they couldn't have visitors at any time. As he say, aged, uh, they seem like such privileged characters. <laughs> so finally, they decided to, we had a small accident ward. It was sort of off from the rest of the uh, hospital. And there we put in a coffee bar and Dr. Bob set up the program. I uh, want to tell you that the first opportunity he had, he brought Bill over. And, uh, of course, I couldn't imagine who this wonderful Bill was. But I soon learned that uh, God had chosen two great men. What one didn't have, the other supplemented. And together, they were perfect. I could just see, I often say to our boys, had God picked out two great religious leaders, no one would have come near them because the alcoholic doesn't want anything about religion or God, nor do we try to preach religion to them. But they aren't in very long until they're asking or telling you what experience they've had and what they'd like to do. They know they haven't been living right. And I feel that, as many of our nurses have said, the best sedative is peace of mind. If once they can be relieved of their anxieties and worries and treated properly, there should be no trouble. Personally, first come in and uh, Dr. Uh, set up the program. No televisions, no radios, no newspapers. Only literature pertaining to AA or something that would have a a moral, I mean, a building of their morals and things of that kind. Because they don't, they have all the reading they can take care of and then their visitors, too. Well, we went on with that. There's, there are many details I could bring in, but I don't want to make it too long because I know many of you have probably questions that maybe Colonel Towns could answer and some of these people who know much more than I. But anyway, during doctor's time, I think we treated before between four and five thousand. And he treated them. He came in every day unless he was out of town or something like that. And uh, without any charge, he said, that's my contribution to AA. First, in those days, they didn't have too much either to start with. And he couldn't mention money very well for how much it would cost because if we just get them sober, it would mean a great deal. But that was taken care of later on. Thank God. It worked out very well. And there are no problems. Oh, many times, whether they have it or don't, we take them in because God certainly provides. And a man who gets this problem is everlastingly grateful. Doctors, um, it's hard to understand Sometimes he'd make rounds and he'd come down and he'd say, Sister, let that man go home. He doesn't want this program. Oh, but Doctor has a big family and he has to set me up. Doesn't want the program, Sister. He isn't ready. So he was always right. Many times they'd frighten me with they'd have a heart attack or they would tell me they had a bad heart or something. And I hated to bother Doctor too much. Often I'd call Anne. I think... Members of this group, or any alcoholic, 
should often say a prayer for Anne because she was the backbone of this. In her calm, quiet way, she was really an angel. I would call her and say, Oh, Anne, I'm so worried about this fellow. She knew most of them from either reputation or doctor telling about them. And uh, she would get the doctor if it was anything serious, but otherwise she'd not. Don't worry about them. Because, well, they have a, they have a, uh, they're allobiologists, in other words. <laughs> and I learned they were. <laughs> they do anything to uh, promote another drink or treatment of some kind. So, well, <clears throat> uh, we take them but once. That was doctor's plan, too. I thought, oh, my. That's kind of strict, isn't it? But, oh, I see the wisdom of it. Because if there is a merry-go-round, when that temptation comes, you want to think, well, I can get back in there for five or six days. Well, that'll be all right. Sister's good. She'll take me back. And I'd only be encouraged my drinking. They know that it's a one-way trip. The sponsors... And as uh, Colonel Town said, they are. Their cooperation is tremendous. Any hospital who tries to just take them in on their own is very foolish because they need the sponsorship. I often say it's something like learning the technique of crawl. You may know all the angles and all the rules, but unless you get out there in the field and do some footwork and practice, you won't be much of a golfer. So we tried, Dr. Felt, if they could be taken out of their environment. At first, it was just five days because people were pretty depleted after the depression and all, financially. And uh, the sooner we got them back to their family, the better. Although many of those first AAs would take them into their own homes and try to help indoctrinate them. They worked in groups. It was marvelous what they did. But, however, we uh, certainly have uh, uh, found that it was very wise because the sponsor will not bring them until they are ready. And then we, he screens them carefully and goes over it. We want to be sure the sponsor is not just a person they met in a bar somewhere. Uh, but one, I usually have them what groups are attending. Of course, now I know most of them well, know who are good sponsors and who are not. But it's a tremendous help. So finally, <clears throat> we, um, um, the time came. Well, uh, Anne, of course, died in 49. And that... Uh, was very hard for doctors. He called from the Cleveland Airport. They had just gotten in from Texas, and the plane was grounded. Wasn't <clears throat> Bill knows more about this than I. Anyway, they brought him directly to the hospital, and we kept doctor there too, because he was pretty well shaken up with all this, and Anne died of pneumonia and all that. So uh, went on from there, doctor. Then died in 1950, a year and a half later. He knew then, I believe, that he had a malignancy. He uh, talked with Bill, well, I think that several times a week, if not every other day, he'd give me a little message. 
And uh, I felt as though <clears throat> I knew Bill and his guiding spirit, too, because there wasn't very much done that they didn't consult together on, especially anything affecting this, the foundation of this. Then uh, one day I got worried. We're just like people in the Army, you know, we go to where we're sent. I often wondered whether I was off the mailing list or whether I was forgotten. <laughs> I, was, I was there for uh, 24 years, probably one week short of 24 years, and uh, finally the obedience came. So I was to go to charity and uh, work with AA there. They had had AA at charity and fine workers there, but they just had a small department. And Sister Victorine, a very fine sister, who everybody loved, was there too. And she came down and we told her everything and Dr. Bob talked with her. And she really did a good job. But uh, they decided to build a new wing and all the extra. Oh, I know they thought uh, Alcoholics Anonymous was a frill then or not, but uh, everything was discontinued. It wasn't absolutely a chase of life or death. So they <clears throat> just kind of forgot about AA. But Reverend Mother didn't. She saw much good in it, I know. I went there in August, and I didn't hear a word about, other than on my obedience, it said uh, that I was to take care of this floor and uh, visit these patients and work with AA. Well, I knew someday maybe we'd have them. But anyway, I just observed and went along day by day. Finally, one day, I got a call. I was in surgery checking on the patient to see, find out the condition. Found we were worried about this patient and the bell rang furiously and said, Superior wants you she's on your floor. And I came down, and the architect of the new building was there, and um, a few nurses, uh, the director of our nursing service was there, and uh, of course, uh, Superior said, What kind of a setup would you like for this AA? Well, you imagine standing in the middle of the floor and feeling rather strange. I didn't know whether I was at home myself or not just yet. And I uh, couldn't think very fast. So this nurse uh, said, uh, well, sister, are they violent? I said, no, they're not violent. Oh, they're not intoxicated. Yes, they are intoxicated. <laughs> but they're clear enough to be screened because we must make sure that they want the person. Well, she said to the architect, you won't need those cages then. <laughs> well, I said... I said, and asked you, Barton, would you mind, give me a few days and we'll drop a little plan of what we'd like? Fine. Well, the day that they came was on the beach of our Lady of the Rosary, that's how we call it, Rosary Hall. And there is, uh, connected with that, when I was moved there, I thought, oh, I'd love to have this in memory of Dr. Bob. Well... I thought if I get permission, rather than call it the alcoholic ward, we'll call it Rosary Hall. And I was thinking marking their robes, R.H. Well, I thought all I need is a nest, and I have doctor's initials, R.H.S. Robert Holbrook Smith. So we call it Rosary Hall Solarium. 
insignia on the door is RHF. Permission to open the warrant is granted by a hospital hospital authorities on October the 7th, 1952. Peace of Mosoli Rosary. I feel that to people, whether they're in the church or whatever the denomination, when you see a rosary, you know it means prayer. People get the rosary out, well, you think they're praying somehow. So to everyone, I think this is all a result of someone's prayer. The grace of God comes through someone's prayer and penance, that's for sure. Well, anyway, the, uh, it was there for the main rosary hall, Solarium. Well, I told you about that. The insignia eloquently expresses the efforts of the Sisters of Charity St. Augustine, a Catholic religious order, as they join forces with the members of AA, a strictly non-sectarian movement, in an attempt to rescue men and women of all creeds from the bottomless pit of alcoholism. To be admitted to this award, you must be sponsored by a member of AA in good standing. You must also evidence a desire not just to get sober, but also preserve and perpetuate your sobriety on a day-by-day basis. Unless you yourself are willing to admit that you are an alcoholic, you are advised to seek help elsewhere. The physical therapy is the most modern known to medical science. The patient's entire stay is the retirement from the outside world and the habits which have caused his collapse. There are no radios, televisions, um, newspapers or magazines. Nothing but AA literature and other literature in keeping with the programs are available. The patient may have no visitors except members of Alcoholics Anonymous who are welcome between 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. The conversation has turned to alcoholism and its ravaging problems. Every evening, a member of AA comes to the hospital to conduct a brief AA meeting for the patients and attract a coffee bar stands in the center of the hall where AA members and the patients often gather to discuss their common problems. A little oratory is open at all times. Just if they want to do some prayerful thinking, it's there. The remodeling and construction work for the solarium was done by members of AA who contributed their time and money. Members who belong to the building trades worked day and night during these spare hours to complete the lovely uh, quarters at no cost to the hospital. Rosary Hall accepted its first patient one year ago, and since that date, 1,000 men and women have been hospitalized therein. We have much room for women. We're hoping to get more. Oh, we have three. We have, Usually we have three, sometimes four, and even a stretch to five, but that isn't good. However, uh, the remodel of Rosary Hall accepted its first patient one year ago, and since that date, well, pardon me for repeating. They have been offered not only the key to sobriety, but also the key to a happy sobriety. The sisters of Terry and members of Alcoholics Anonymous who had assisted them decline any individual credit. They are aware that it is in giving we receive. Well, God bless you all, and I wish you a continued happy sobriety. And uh, may God's grace be with you always and bless every one of you. Thank you. This recording of Bill Wilson was transferred from a record to the tape. Uh, he talked at an open meeting here, April 1947. Thanks.
There are two ways of looking at Alcoholics Anonymous. To our friends seated here among us, Alcoholics Anonymous doubtless seems a huge and spectacular success. They may be thinking of us as a people who have won brilliant personal victories by fighting great odds. But every AA in this audience knows his friends give him too much credit that in actuality his recovery did not happen that way at all. Each in his heart knows that he became too weak to fight alone, that he had to confess his life had become unmanageable and therefore unbearable. He remembers how his power of will to conquer alcohol was crushed, how he finally saw he could never win through under his own strength. Nevertheless, he will tell you that this bitter admission, the hardest a human being can make, was the beginning of his new life, that new life of which this meeting is such a glowing and grateful testimony. <coughs> Hence, no AA meeting can ever be a boast of personal victory. It is, instead, our humble demonstration of that saving grace which all of us have found in a simple reliance on a power greater than ourselves. But, our friends may object, isn't this contrary to most human experience nowadays? Each of you quits the fight. You form into groups, then you help each other. Meanwhile, depending upon some higher power, we admit it works, we have seen the proof. Still, your philosophy doesn't entirely make sense. How can you win wars without fighting battles? Nowadays, when almost everybody feels he must fight, even to survive, here is the Society of Alcoholics Anonymous telling us, yes, proving to the whole world that in their experience they have found a new life only by first admitting they could not personally control the old one, let alone managing anything or anybody else. By what strange paradox, then, has this new strength arisen out of your bygone weakness? Whence out of complete defeat comes your astounding transformation? Explain, if you can, the secret of this seeming contradiction this divine paradox? These are the very natural questions of those who first observe us. Intuitively, our friends sense a mystery. Most of them feel they have seen a miracle. For so powerful has been the alcoholic obsession that all through the ages, few victims have ever survived it. Now comes this wholesale liberation thousands every month. Is this miracle of recovery due only to the fact that we alcoholics have gotten together, telling each other that we are sick, advising each other to fetch in more sufferers, and exhorting each other to be more honest and tolerant? Is that all there is to it? Have we only constructed one more psychological gadget, this time operated by the patients? rather than the doctors. Few people who have taken a good look at AA 
believe this to be the full explanation. Some years ago, a prominent physician was asked to explain Alcoholics Anonymous to a group of his colleagues. Said he, when declining the invitation, these AAs have assembled many powerful psychological resources. Yet the sum total of these resources does not explain to me the results I have witnessed. In days and weeks, I have seen unbelievable changes in their behavior and motivation. Changes in alcoholics which formerly, if at all possible, should have taken years at best. I can only say this. There is a power at work among these people for which I cannot account. I have to call it the X factor. Most AAs call it God. I have no scientific explanation for this mystery. Like our friend the doctor, any AA will also admit that he cannot fully explain the inner mystery of his own transformation. He can only tell the story of it as best he can so that others may, if they wish, find their own freedom. Mine is a simple tale to tell. As with countless other thousands who had gone before me down the left-hand path to alcohol oblivion, I came finally to the jumping-off place and could not turn back. It was midsummer, 1934. At a New York hospital for alcoholics, I was lying on one of those grim beds of physical and mental anguish we AAs know so well. I had been there before, but this time it was different. This time I had no hope. This was the finish. The curtain, it seemed to me. What a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my ability, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. So I was soon to plunge out into the dark, joining that endless procession who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. No words can tell of the loneliness and bitter despair I found in that morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. Alcohol was my master. Tense and anxious, my wife, Lois, sat downstairs with a staff physician. That kindly man, Dr. William Silkworth, a medical saint, if ever there was one, was trying in his gentle way to explain my alcoholic dilemma to her. But, doctor, she pleaded, tell me, don't spare my feelings, Tell me truly, just why can't Bill stop? He has desperately wanted to for these several years. About other things, he always had great willpower and perseverance. 
He well knows that alcohol means ruin. Oh, tell me the truth, Doc. Why can't he stop? As considerately as he could, the good man explained how my drinking, once but a habit, had now become a veritable obsession. How my body, which could once tolerate alcohol, had now become highly sensitized to it. Allergic, he called it. So my dilemma was twofold. An obsession as powerful as that of a kleptomaniac to steal. And a physical intolerance to alcohol as grim as that of a diabetic to sugar. The obsession condemned me to drink in spite of myself. My bodily intolerance ensured that I would die or go mad if I kept it up. My only hope, therefore, was the expulsion of my self-destructive obsession. A rare occurrence once it had taken firm hold. At first the doctor had felt that I might be one of those rare exceptions. But now, seemingly, I was too far gone. I would, he thought, have to be confined somewhere if I were to live very long. Such was my sense. Though not told me in so many words, I well knew what it was. I had tried too many times and had failed too often. I had no more strength to resist. I was through. But it was darkest before dawn. For then came a friend with a message. He was an alcoholic who had been relieved of his obsession. He stood before me as living proof of what he had to say. One alcoholic talking to another. He could convince where others could not. Despite my reluctance, for I was an agnostic, I knew I must heed his message or die. Though not easy to take, his message was simple and direct in the extreme. But within its seeming simplicity, it did carry the miraculous power to expel alcohol obsession and catapult me into a new world. In my case, this occurred the very moment I was willing to lay aside my prejudice, admit my personal helplessness, and try, without reservation, what he offered me. Perhaps this is not the time or place to talk at length of my own recovery, of our AA program in detail, or of our astounding growth. This room is filled with fellow alcoholics who know and practice the AA way of life as well as I. The accomplishments of Alcoholics Anonymous, are headlined in the press of the world. So I shall be content if I can remind myself and any who would hear that Alcoholics Anonymous is not, after all, a personal success story. It is instead the story of our colossal human failures, now converted into the happiest kind of usefulness by that divine alchemy the living grace of God.
For all those who would know us a little better, or who perchance might wish to try our simple message for themselves, I can do no better than leave with them the last seven lines of our book of experience, Alcoholics Anonymous. These lines read as follows. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of the past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet more of us as you trudge our road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.